In congregation this morning, we would direct your attention in the Word of God to a section of Scripture reading from 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, it is our intention this morning to begin a series of sermons through the Belgic Confession. We're thankful for the opportunity uh, to be in the pulpit again and to commence this series of sermons through the Belgic Confession. Uh, this morning, we're going to have an introductory sermon, so we will not be reading an actual article of the Belgic Confession, as we'll be doing in forthcoming weeks. But we always read the Word of God, because preaching is ultimately always an exposition of the Word of God. This morning's Scripture passage is 1 Peter 3. We'll read verses 8 through 17. I uh, hear now together the reading of the Word of God. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And thus far for this morning, our reading from the Word of God. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. I often think that the words that are written in Judges 2, verses 10 through 12, are some of the most sobering words, some of the most solemn words. Especially when you think of the faith, the Christian faith, being handed down from generation to generation. In Judges 2, 10 through 12, it is written as follows. When all that generation, the previous generation, when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers through death, another generation arose after them. And of course, if we pause and simply add this commentary, that is the way the human race has existed from the beginning of time. And that is how the human race will exist until the conclusion of time. One generation follows after another generation. The sons and daughters come after the fathers and the mothers. But that's not simply what the text in Judges 2, verse 10 through 12 is setting forth. Uh, this continued progression uh, of generational uh, births and deaths. But another generation arose, it says, who did not know the Lord. They did not know the Lord. Nor the work, nor the work which he had done for Israel. So a subsequent generation of children were born and raised and came to the maturity of adulthood. 
But they did not know the Lord, nor the work which He had done for them. The text continues, Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. There's a connection there between ignorance and idolatry. This subsequent generation did not know the Lord in a powerful, saving, experiential way. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because they did not know the Lord and because they did not understand or appreciate the work of redemption which He had done for them, they forsake the Lord. They quit the Lord, you might say. They gave up on the Lord. And they fell into the grievous sin of idolatry. The text continues, they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. And so that text sets before us the sober, solemn reality of the danger of apostasy. Apostasy to fall away from the faith. It has often been said, and I believe rightfully so, while we understand, of course, that the Lord knows those who are His, and that He always has the remnant of the church, even in the days of Elijah, when Elijah cried out in spiritual desperation that he was the only one left, the Lord came to him and said, no, I have 7,000 knees that have not bent to Baal. Nevertheless, it has been rightly said, I believe, that the church is always one generation away from apostasy. You can apply that to a local congregation. You can apply that to a federation. One generation away from apostasy. If a subsequent generation, our children, or perhaps our grandchildren, or our great-grandchildren, arise with ignorance concerning the Lord and concerning His work, the danger is very real that they will forsake the Lord our God. In an attempt to remedy such a sober threat, the church labors to instruct, to teach, to proclaim, to make known to all generations who will gather, those who are elderly and those who are in their infancy, uh, those who come into the sanctuary, uh, so to speak, uh, in their twilight years, and those also who are carried into the sanctuary uh, by the arms of their loving parents. The church seeks to instruct all who will listen about the Lord our God and about the work that He has done. And this is what the church has done for generations. And this is what the Belgic Confession was composed to do. To teach. To teach the church. To teach those who were called by God concerning the nature of our Lord and concerning especially the work that He has done. It is, you might say, to fulfill the, the mandate given in Jude 3 that Guido de Bray authored the Belgic Confession. Jude 3. Beloved, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. We've, we've read from 1 Peter 3, uh, including that well-known text Uh, in verse 15, "...but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear." On the original printed edition of the Belgic Confession, uh, on the very cover, that text was placed in a prominent position. 
And as we, Lord willing, by His providence, move through the Belgic Confession, it is with this verse, so to speak, over every single exposition, over every single article, that you and that I, that we together as a congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might sanctify the Lord God in our hearts, and that we also might be ready, those of us who are old and those of us who are young, to give an answer, to give a defense, to give an explanation for those who may ask the reason that we have of hope. And so we look this morning briefly in an introductory way at our Belgic Confession. Notice in the theme I've placed that word our. Our Belgic Confession. We have a historic document hundreds of years old. But it is not some type of document that is simply placed in a museum for us to occasionally pull out and look upon in some act of reminiscence. It is rather to be our Belgic Confession. What is written in the following articles is to be our confession. We believe. And so our Belgic Confession, we'll notice first of all this morning, its origin, and then secondly, its content, and then third, its purpose. First of all, the origin, then secondly, the content, and then thirdly, the purpose. Its origin this morning, two things that we would say, and we want to avoid an overly academic examination of the authorship of the Belgic Confession. Uh, That study can be done in a different context, and there are uh, innumerable resources to aid uh, a study uh, of the historical background of the composition of the Belgic Confession. But two things that we want to say this morning about the origin of the Belgic Confession relate to its personal author and then its ecclesiastical approval. So, the Belgic Confession was composed by a Reformed preacher who labored in the the lowlands or in the Netherlands and Belgium to advance the Christian faith as it had come to be understood, what we now call the Reformed faith, especially as articulated uh, through that human agent uh, of God's reformatory work, John Calvin. Uh, The Belgic Confession, of course, is one of what we call our three forms of unity. uh, Documents that express the doctrines, the truths, the realities that we believe, that we profess, that are revealed unto us in the Word of God. And in a summary manner, these three forms of unity articulate and also safeguard a unity in doctrine. And so from the 16th century on in the Reformed churches, these three forms of unity, along with the formula of subscription, which every office bearer within this congregation, within our federation, and within conservative Reformed churches, sign their name saying, yes, we believe this to be our confession. We believe this to be a faithful summary of the principal cardinal truths of God and of His redemptive work. But in its original context, one man was chosen by God, Guido de Bray, to compose the Belgic Confession. And he composed it, Guido did, under a time of intense persecution. So I don't want you to think that this man just kind of sat in his study in ease and as kind of a sideline hobby, just kind of wrote down some general principal truths that he was contemplating or that he was reflecting upon. Guido de Bray was often persecuted 
uh, by the Roman Catholic authorities. At that time, there was a mixture between uh, civil authority and ecclesiastical authority. The distinction that we now understand of a separation between the authoritative realm of the church and of the state, uh, that was not understood in the 16th century. And so Guido de Bray was often found uh, on the run, you might say preaching in open fields, uh, hiding in places, but he was not an ignorant person. He was a very careful biblical student. Uh, He was a a, a theologian uh, of of some notability. He understood the faith well underneath the providence of God. He studied at the majority of the leading Reformed institutions of his day. He believed the Word of God. He believed the Word of God with a personal conviction. And we're not attempting to make some type of hero out of Guido de Bray this morning, but rather we're simply seeking to illustrate the reality of 1 Peter 3, verse 15, as that played out in the life of a certain person in the 16th century, Guido de Bray. He had a deep spiritual and theological conviction Now, what is a conviction? Uh, There is a difference between knowing something and some type of passing curiosity and being convicted of something. We talk about the convictions of a person as those beliefs that a person carries that are not in any type of a way going to be flexible. And that's what the Christian faith ought to be. When we say that we believe something, we believe it not just in our mind, yes, in our mind, but we believe it in our heart of hearts. It is at the very essence of who we are. And these convictions are not something that we can compromise. The mature biblical Christian is a man or a woman who lives, or at least ought to live, by a set of convictions that flow out of the revelation of the Word of God. Uh, convictions that they cannot compromise upon no matter what the culture, no matter what the experts of the day say. And so Guido de Bray had these convictions that brought him even to the point of martyrdom. You might simply say he was hanged for his Reformed convictions. Especially related to the sufficiency of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as He objected to some of the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church and as He emphatically insisted upon justification by faith alone. He was hunted down and He was hanged. And that presents us with this sobering question, for what for what would you and I die? Do you, do I have convictions Beliefs that we hold so firmly, so dearly that we would be willing to be hung rather than to deny them. I ask this not just, but especially for those who are young. You have convictions concerning who God is and concerning what God has done. Convictions, beliefs that make up the very essence of who you are. That I am a person who believes there is one only true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And that this God has revealed Himself, yes, in the realm of nature, but especially within His written Word, and especially within the incarnate Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that He is a sovereign God. And that in His sovereignty, He is also a redeeming God. And that His redemption is through the Mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that that Lord Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. And that all who call upon Him in faith and in repentance will be saved, but all who reject Him or who refuse the Lord Jesus Christ will be condemned for their unbelief and for their sin. Men, women, boys, girls, congregation, the church has always needed this type of conviction, but especially in our day, when all of the influences of humanism and of secularism uh, begin to bombard us with increased intensity. You and I, we must be a people who stand on the authority of the Word of God and say, we are convinced of these truths, of these realities. But it wasn't just a personal origin. It was an ecclesiastical origin. Ecclesiastical, boys and girls, just a fancy word for church. It's not just Guido de Bray who believed these things, but indeed it were the churches that believed these things. And so, just a little bit of brief background. Various Reformed synods or meetings of the churches of Protestant beliefs and convictions already in 1566 adopted the Belgian Confession. And what does that mean that they adopted the Belgian Confession? That they read it carefully, that they read it critically, examining it according to the Reformed principle of sola scriptura or of Scripture alone. So you might say, figuratively speaking, uh, these delegates to these broader assemblies, uh, these pastors and teachers within the church with their Bible in the one hand and with the Belgic Confession in the other hand, they read through the Belgic Confession and they said, yes, we believe this is a faithful summary of what the Word of God teaches. It does not just simply echo the Bible verbatim. It does not just simply pull quotes, but it faithfully summarizes the Word of God. And subsequent synods of Reformed churches have also said the same. Yes, we believe these documents, the Belgic Confession, and later the Heidelberg Catechism, and then the Canons of Dort, are faithful summaries of the Word of God. The United Reformed churches also, from their very origin, have said the same thing. And every single office bearer within this congregation we assume if they have faithfully taken the responsibility of signing the formula of subscription, have in essence read through the Belgic Confession and said, analyzing it with their Bibles, we believe this to be a faithful summary of the Word of God. And so that is something of the origin of the Belgic Confession. We turn then to our second point, its content. And of course here we can just be uh, brief as we give an overview of the content, subsequent weeks, we trust by the Lord's providence, will give us the opportunity to unfold the content of the Belgian Confession article by article. Uh, but if you were to say at least two things about the content of the Belgian Confession, we would say that it is a systematic summary of biblical truth and it is an apologetic defense of biblical truth. I want to remind us this morning of the words that Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3, verse 15. Uh, he mentions there that the Christian church, whether that be in its broadest universal sense, or whether that be in relationship to a particular local congregation, 
He writes there that the Christian church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Now when you think of a pillar, boys and girls, and maybe as you make your way out of the sanctuary when the service is over, you can look and there are, if I can count them quickly, there are four columns behind you that are holding up the front of the balcony. These are what we call structural support systems. They bear the weight, you might say, of the balcony. They're not really that decorative, but that's not their function. Their function is not simply to be decorative. Their function is to be supportive. But when you think of the Christian church, the Christian church is not necessarily to be some type of flashy organization in the midst of the human race, but rather to support, to lift up, to hold up the Word of God. Not that the Word of God needs support in the sense that it will fail otherwise. But rather, this is the function of the Christian church. To make known to the nations the Word of God in its content and in its implications. And that's what the Belgic Confession does as it states the basic, major, cardinal, essential truths of the Christian faith. And this is exactly why originally Guido de Bray wrote it. And we mentioned that there was intense persecution, especially from Roman Catholic authorities, from the King of Spain, uh, who wanted to eradicate the Reformation as it began to influence the lowlands, uh, those countries that would eventually organize as the Netherlands. And so he introduced the Inquisition, a brutal, horrific form of persecution. And his desire was to stamp out any type of reformed presence. And in reaction to that, which is why 1 Peter 3 is so fitting as it speaks about this persecution. In reaction to that, the reformers did not revile back. They did not persecute back. They did not return evil for evil. But you might say as they were being hunted and as they were being hanged, they turned to this oppressive regime of the world and of the apostate church. And they said, this is what we believe. Here are the systematic summaries concerning God and His work. Especially His work. Not exclusively. They talk about, of course, the providence of God. But especially the work of redemption. And this, I believe, is instructive for us. There are many, many things that the Christian could engage in dialogue and in debate even with the unbelieving world and with the oppressive powers that may be. But, we learn something from our Reformed Fathers. They were ready to give an answer for the hope that they had. Now, if you and I analyze the majority of the times in which we debate things or dialogue about things, we need to be very, very careful lest the majority of our time uh, be the critical evaluation of the, the state of affairs within our world. We can find ourselves, and I'm guilty of it probably more than anyone else, but in my experience, we can find ourselves so quickly bemoaning the state of affairs within the church or within the world uh, that it's no wonder no one ever stops us and asks us for the reason for the hope that we have. Because we're so busy bemoaning everything that is wrong within the world. But our Reformed forefathers illustrate for us what Peter calls us to do. 
in the midst of the oppressive regimes of the secular powers of this world, hold forth a testimony concerning the Word of God, concerning the work of God, especially in the redemption that He has accomplished and that He proclaims to a world that, yes, is lost in sin, that is blind in its folly and its ignorance. And yes, a world and a culture and a human race that is progressing itself into the experience of Romans 1 and 2. Of a blindness and of a hardness of heart. And it is exactly into that context that we take the words of the Belgic Confession as they summarize Scripture and they say, this is what we believe. There is a way of redemption. There is a way of salvation. There is hope for a fallen world. And that hope is found exclusively in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning also, we both proclaim to you that hope is ultimately found only in the work of Jesus Christ. But we also then call you, command you, to find all of your hope in the work, the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we warn you that if you look for hope anywhere else, it will be a futile search. Ultimately, our hope is not with some regime change, either within our own nation or within a global context. Ultimately, our hope is not placed upon the prospect of world peace. Our hope ultimately is fixated upon the promised return of the Lord Jesus Christ when all things will become new. And so that's something of the content, but also as an apologetic. An apologetic. Uh, apology is not, in this context, is not to say, I'm sorry, but rather to give a defense of what we believe. And, and so you'll notice as we move through article after article, as the Belgic Confession presents a positive, a positive statement of what we believe, at times it also confronts errors. Uh, and it does so in a few instances, in a very pointed way. I'm mentioning, of course, the heirs of the Roman Catholic Church, but also of the Anabaptist movement. Uh, and so the Reformers, not in an abrasive type of a way, but the Reformers, and of course Scripture also, you can think of the Apostle Paul as he confronts theological error within the church. At, at times, the Christian church must be very pointed even as we present that which we believe to be true, we also then identify that which we believe to be false. Now this is, of course, very, very, very unpopular in our day, even within the broad churches. People will tolerate you if you're only going to simply say positive things, but the minute you begin to identify things that are false, then people become very uncomfortable. Then people say, well, no, this has gone too far. Now he's going to offend people. Well, who is he to make such black and white statements of orthodoxy and of heterodoxy? Well, we simply see that this must be done. This must be done for the good of the Christian church and especially for the good of the subsequent generations of the Christian church. We must take our young people and our children and not only say this is what is true in relationship to God and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also say this is what is false. This is the lie of the evil one. Be on guard. Because one thing about false doctrine, false teaching, error, is that it creeps in subtly. Uh, that's what Jude mentions. 
Uh, he tells the church to contend earnestly for the faith once and for all delivered unto the saints because certain men have crept in unaware. They have sneaked into the church. And as I was thinking about this this week, uh, I thought about when I was growing up uh, on the farm and there was this noxious weed, velvet leaf. I'm not sure if it's, a, if it's an issue uh, here in uh, the fertile plains of Iowa, but uh, where we grew up, it was quite a noxious weed. And, and what would happen, this velvet leaf, and we didn't have a lot of it, but if it came into your field, it would just slowly take over. And so year one, you'd have a small patch. And year two, if you didn't take the drastic steps of seeking to eradicate, year two, it would be a broader patch. And year three, and you get the idea, and it would slowly grow until it had completely consumed the crop in the field. Congregation, make no doubt about it, false teaching is similar. False teaching is never content to simply reside in a corner of the church. But it always seeks to grow. And as it seeks to grow, false doctrine always seeks to take over in an oppressive type of a way. And that, beloved, is why at times, yes, with meekness, with gentleness, without neglecting those various exhortations that are given in verse 8, 9 of First Peter 3, yes, indeed, even as we are apologetic, Uh, we certainly are to have compassion. That's why we engage in apologetics out of compassion for those who might be influenced by the lie of false doctrine. And we certainly do so of love because love does not seek the harm uh, of our neighbor, but rather the well-being of our neighbor. And false doctrine never serves a person well. And so in the fulfillment of these various commands and found in First Peter, we do engage in apologetic activity. Uh, well, that ties in, uh, and certainly we can be brief in our third point. We're simply trying to tie this all together. What is the purpose of the Belgian Confession and by extension, uh, our confessional standards? Why do we have these confessions? Certainly, Scripture is sufficient. We believe that that is one of our core convictions. That will become evident as we look at the introductory articles of the Belgian Confession. But our confessions serve as a unifying form of defense. And here I cannot help but think of the analogy of a filter, whether it be on your furnace, whether it be on your car, whether it be on your farm equipment. A filter serves a very, very, very critical purpose. And that it catches harmful impurities that may, if left unchecked, further harm uh, the operation of the piece of equipment. And so filters, although small and although seemingly insignificant, serve a valuable purpose. And we could give anecdotal story after anecdotal story of a young person or of a middle-aged person who was confronted. Maybe it's at a college or university or maybe it's in the workplace or maybe it's they went to a different church and they listened to the sermon. They come back to you and they say, I can't really put a finger on it, but something just seemed amiss. Something just seemed off with what this person was saying or what that person was saying. And oftentimes, you can trace the fact that their reformed biblical antenna started to buzz with these unbiblical teachings to the fact that they had been catechized, that they had received 
the faithful instruction of the Word of God as that Word is summarized within the confessions. And then they couldn't exactly put their finger on what was wrong with the teaching they heard. But they knew something was wrong. And they caught it. And they came, perhaps to someone who had more insight, more knowledge, whatever it may be, and they said, I'm not sure that this is right. If you and I are well versed within the confessional truths as they are articulated in the Belgian Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Dort as faithful summaries of the Word of God, we will then be well served. If anyone, even behind this pulpit, even if I myself, if I ever say anything, if any minister behind this pulpit ever says anything, and you hold up your confessions and you go, this doesn't sound right. You see, that's the valuable purpose of our confessions. Because having signed our names to the formula of subscription, having received these documents, now they are not exhaustive statements of truth, but they clearly point out the basic, essential, cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. That's one purpose. The other purpose is that of instruction. And so for hundreds of years, our confessions have been used to instruct the people of God. Both in the preaching that is following the structure of our confessions as it explains the truths of the Word of God, but also within the catechism class. And, and, and those of you who are older, I, I think of myself, uh, of all of the office bearers, whether they be ministers or whether they be elders or other qualified persons. And this is one of the great privileges of being born within the administrative realm of the covenant of grace. That even from a day in which I cannot remember or recollect because it was before my conscious memory, these biblical truths were being set before my mind and my heart by Individuals who faithfully labored so that the next generation would not arise with ignorant idolatry. And many of you, I trust, can also think back. Uh, former ministers, former elders, former catechism teachers who used these valuable tools of the Heidelberg Catechism and of the Canons of Dordan and the Belgian Confession to set before you and maybe at the time you didn't appreciate. Maybe at the time you thought, this is a boring exercise. But they set before you the truths of the way of salvation. And now you reside as a professing member within the congregation of God's people. You say, I believe these things. Underneath the operation of the Holy Spirit, but as the Holy Spirit use the means, the instruments of teachers. What a wonderful blessing. And so in conclusion, as we think about the passing of the baton of the Christian faith from one generation to the next generation, this is a purpose of our confessional documents. It's not so much, congregation, and this is my heartfelt belief, it is not so much that the church needs novelty as much as the church needs the old paths. Not simply for traditionalism's sake, 
When I speak of the old paths, perhaps you are drawn to a verse in Jeremiah. The Belgic Confession instructs us in the old paths of the biblical religion of Christianity. And the closing exhortation is let us learn from and build upon the faith of all our fathers. As Jeremiah 6, verse 16 says, Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths where the good way is, and walk in it. There you will find rest for your souls. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank You that You are a covenantal God who has revealed Yourself to us and to our children and to our children's children, giving us promises. We thank You also that in Your providence You have given us these confessional documents to set forth the truths of Scripture. Lord, we now ask that You would also give us an earnest desire to seek the old paths, the good way, and to walk within it the truths of who You are and of what You have done, that we might not be a generation that would arise with ignorant idolatry, but that we would be a generation that would arise with heartfelt conviction concerning the Christian faith. So we ask for Your blessing to this end. In Jesus' name, Amen.